In addition to taking care of one another inside the church, what if we developed a lifestyle taking care of the most needy outside the walls of the church? How would that change the community and our city? Bob Moffitt, president and founder of Harvest Foundation in Phoenix, along with Pastor Julian Gibb, talk with pastors and leaders about how sacrificial love by those in the church to those in need outside the church has helped people see and embrace Jesus Christ. It's that demonstration of Jesus' greatest commandment that we'll hear more about today on The Kingdom and Its Stories. Well, good afternoon. It's Monday, 5.30 p.m. drive time. My name is Julian Gibb, and I co-host this show, which is entitled The Kingdom and Its Stories. So thank you for all for tuning in. Today, we're blessed to once again have Marcus. Marcus, we had him on uh, last week, indeed, and uh, he was just too interesting. Uh, the, the amount of uh, information and the, the, the challenges that he went through and the way that the Lord brought him through them was just inspiring. And so we asked him to come back. There was just too much that we wanted to hear from him say. So, Marcus, thank you for coming. This time all the way from Tucson. So yes. <laughs> thank you for uh, joining us once again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really it's it's an honor to be part of this and uh to be able to share in the, in, in, in the city and in the, in the state of Arizona. So I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. So, Marcus, uh, on the last show, you shared with us a little bit about your life story, the fact that um, you were born in uh, Liberia and uh, raised in a very uh, healthy, happy family, and uh, just how uh, that all was all taken away from you just in the space of a few months, yeah. that uh, uh, a civil war raged in the country and uh you had to flee uh from your country to to where did you go to i went to a neighboring country ghana is in west africa yeah ghana that's where we ended up and so so you went on a rickety boat was that is that correct Uh, is that uh uh, yeah something like a rickety boat. it was a it was a transport boat for uh peacekeeping troops kind of equipment okay uh because peacekeepers had come from ghana and nigeria into liberia uh, at in the middle of 1990. Okay. And so I left Liberia in 19 yeah 1990 November of 1990, and ended up in Ghana. Ghana so, mm-hmm. in a in a in a refugee camp. Yeah, I lived in a refugee camp for a little while. We were able to move out of there. Found found housing. Uh, started going to school, and I think I talked about this last time. And just a, a hard adjustment to life as as a refugee. I was in Ghana when I found out that my father had been murdered, and I was an orphan. Uh, we did the we did the paperwork and went through the interviews and came to the states. Uh, I think last time I shared arrival in the states and how cold it was and how difficult the transition was with school. Uh, we were, you know, we were in poverty. I mean, refugees coming to the coming to the United States, trying to settle and trying to make sense of of America, trying to make sense of life, leaving everything you've ever known and coming to a new place. Um, so I had a I had a hard time adjusting. To school, like I said last time, I think my my teachers and counselors and other people in the school system in America just assumed that I came from another kind of another county, another right. district of schools because I spoke English just fine. Yeah, but inside I was completely clueless socially, and education system was way different, and I just had a hard time. And middle school, high school, those are tough years for a kid to. To transfer schools, let alone transfer yeah. countries and continents and culture, Gosh. and all those kinds of things. So, I mean, was, I mean, you know, as you say, that normally for any kid in that age of life, life's tough. You know, you're yeah. <laughs> you're at school once you're dealing with the pressures of 
of, of even your own culture around you. And yet here you were pulled, you know, ripped from your culture, ripped from your background, your family, put into a wonderful yet strange environment. Uh, and uh, everyone just assuming that you, you, you knew their culture, you knew how things worked, you know. And so, so how, I mean, how in many ways this must have affected you to the core. But, I mean, how, how academically did this affect you? Uh, academically, I um, rewind back to Liberia just a little bit. Um, I was a great student in Liberia. I uh, went to a private school, did really well, A's and B's equivalent. Uh, but when I came to the States, because the systems were so different, uh, people think learning is learning, but there was also this measure of trauma that I that I look back on that I didn't understand what was happening in my mind. Uh, what was happening was I had a blockage in there at some point because when we took tests and quizzes and things like that, when the room got quiet, my mind just mm. – my mind couldn't quiet. I just went back to Liberia. At that point, I didn't know my siblings were still alive. Wow. This is mid-'90s, and I had, hadn't seen them in five, six years. The war had started back up, and so I was kind of grieving and trying to process the war, and I didn't have anyone to talk about it with. Uh mm. So my teachers would be talking, and I just, you know, I'd be like, "There's much more important things in my life than solving an equation or right. memorizing, you know, these yeah. types of things." So I didn't, I didn't do well in school at all in high school. I didn't. As a matter of fact, I spent a lot of times uh, going back and forth with my teachers, not in a disrespectful way, but I didn't want quiet. Right. Uh, so I would talk to my neighbor, talk to. So I ended yeah. up in the hallway and things like that. Um, one of my favorite stories to tell is uh, when I was in 11th grade, I had failed I had failed algebra for the second time, and I was in algebra for the third time. And I was it was a ninth grade class at that point. It was for ninth graders, and I was in 11th grade, okay. and I was in algebra one. And I sat in this class, and when I walked in, my teacher looked at me and she said, "You're an 11th grader. You're in here. You're going to do this." And she sat me in the front of the room, uh, and I passed algebra that year. Ah. Uh, Mrs. Federline is her name. Uh, I love her to death because <laughs> she actually came to Denver 25 years after I had been in her classroom, came to Denver to watch me when I when I gave my TED Talk a few years ago. What's her name? Uh, Mrs. Federline. Judy Shout Federline. out to Judy Federline. <laughs> she saved my high school. She saved, she made sure I graduated. She used to keep me after school wow. just to make sure I had all my other lessons done uh, so I could make it through high school. It wasn't for her. I don't graduate high school. There you go. There you go. There's a there's a hero right there for for one. Now tell me just before we go further. So what what would happen? You're in the um, exams, yeah. or you're in school uh, in a lesson, and it's all quiet. You say you can't you can't handle the quiet. What what would happen? Flashbacks to the war. I'm walking, and I'm, all of a sudden, I, my heart would start racing, and I would start like sweating in class, and I couldn't explain it. Um, and I just I would. Hurriedly finished tests, even like, and I couldn't study. I just couldn't be quiet, you know. And everybody around me knew I was a, I was a smart kid. All my family and those people knew, but I just couldn't get past it at some point. But I figured it out later, later on in life. I barely graduated high school. Um, I don't have anywhere to go for college, so I decided I'm going to join the United States military because I want to go back to find the man who killed my dad, right. and I want to exact revenge. So I joined the United States Army right out of high school uh, in the fall of 1998. Um, 1997, excuse me. I went off to basic training in at Fort Leonardwood, Missouri. And at God would have it, I was almost done with basic training. 
and I was loving life in the military. It was structured. It was great for me. It was never quiet. Uh, and uh, I went to the hospital because I couldn't get rid of a cold. Mm. Um, and and they were checking my heart. Yeah. And one of the doctors said, you shouldn't even be in the Army because you have a heart murmur that's really loud. Wow. And we don't usually pass people on into the military because if you were to get injured or get inf- – if that injury was yeah. to get infected, you would die. Yeah. So – there, that, 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 ended, that ended my military journey after, I don't know, three months. I came home severely, just didn't know what to do with life. Wow. College was not really an option. The military didn't want me. Yeah. So I'm flipping burgers at Burger King, okay. and that's my life. And I'm trying to save money because I'm still angry. Yeah. I'm still angry at the yeah. man who killed my dad, and I can't let it go. So one of my bosses at Burger King looked at me because I would always read the newspaper always having magazines and things. And just my demeanor, he said, man, you're so naturally smart. Why didn't you go to college? Mm. I don't know how to get to college, right. I said. I saw all my friends filling out FAFSA forms and applications. I didn't have the money to fill out applications to get to school. Right. And he said, well, let's start here. Do you know that the public library in America is free? I had been in the country for five years. I didn't know the public library was free. Shout out to public libraries in this country. <laughs> It was on the way to, from my house to work. Okay. The public library, I had to pass the public library every day. So I started getting books, and I started reading, and I started doing my maths, and I started getting better, and then I enrolled in community college, mm. got my grades up, and went to a four-year school, and graduated from a four-year school. Oh. And my love of reading from the age of 19 has just taken off, and I read, I just, it saved me. Mm. Uh, reading, reading saved my life. So I've I've got to run that back. It's off the topic, but it's something very important. So so all those listening out there, the public library, and as you go, I mean that's the American dream in a sense, isn't it? You pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. That's what people would say. I yeah. think I needed I needed a lot of help, but but yeah, I, uh, yeah. the community came around you. The community came around me, yeah. and uh, you know you're, you you studied and pulled yourself up by the bootstraps, you know, and uh, and then and then and then and then then what happened? So I graduate college, uh, ironically become a social studies teacher, and I'm teaching Americans. So you're, <laughs> American you're, you're so 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 at I, one point, you know, you you can't, and and this isn't mocking in any way because I was awful yep. at most things, really. But uh, so you know, one one point you're struggling with with basic maths, yeah. and now and now you're at the point now where you're teaching in a school. Yeah, absolutely. Waha! I taught for uh, taught for seven years, and during those seven years. Um, it was it was during those years that uh, God started to get a hold of my heart because it was a Christian school I was teaching at, and at one point we were I don't know we were doing some kind of retreat or something with the kids, and I remember us praying uh, for the kids uh, the verse Isaiah six eight Here I am Lord send me, and I remember sitting there praying that one of these kids is going to go into ministry. We're praying for all of them and you know hoping that one of them end up ministry, but when it got quiet in the room, Ooh. it hit me. Yeah. I wouldn't say God was speaking to me, but I heard I heard something in my spirit that says, you're not praying this prayer for the kids. Mm. You're actually praying it for you. Mm-hmm. You're the one that's going to go into ministry. This is 2004, 2005. And believe me, Julian, I had no interest, absolutely <laughs> no interest. Because at that point, I was out of college, and I thought I would teach for a few years, yeah. and I'm going to go to law school. And I really wanted to be a politician. I wanted to be the first African-born congressman in this country. Okay. That, was, that was my goal. And nope, not going to happen. So after that hit me, I thought, man, how am I going to, what are you going to do? Like, I have this past that I haven't reconciled with. I have all this unforgiveness that I right. haven't dealt with. Right. 
And what's going to happen? I still don't want to deal with the unforgiveness. Sure. And so probably 2006, 2007, I was reading the Bible, and I came across Matthew 6, 14 and 15. Which is? Jesus says, if you don't forgive others, my paraphrase, I will not forgive you. Mm-hmm. Your Heavenly Father won't forgive you. Mm-hmm. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I had to reconcile that. And um, when I was in college, I would go off to uh, the state of Maine and coach soccer at a, at a summer camp. And while I was there in the summer, I would go to this little church in Naples, Maine, um, Cornerstone. And the pastor there invited me to lunch one day. Mm-hmm. And I sat across from him and I told him the story that I told you last week and this week. Yeah. And he said, he looked at me. He's one of those bold pastors. He looked at me and says, whatever you've got planned for your life, God's going to change it. Because you're going to go. Your 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 story is, is going to change people's lives. Mm. And I thought... No, I couldn't eat for two weeks. And he said, <laughs> "Yeah." Matter of fact, he said, "He said in two weeks, I want you to share this story in front of the church." So you 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 are a biblical character, aren't you? Because I mean, in, in one sense, you know, there's well, Saint Paul thinking of breeding out murderous threats, you know, which is what what you were you were thinking, uh, and then you know the reluctant person uh, responding to the call of God, you know, sort of like. You know, you, I'm thinking of Jonah, Jonah for yeah. instance. Yeah, you know, go and take this word. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to be a politician, my friend, you know, or so or a lawyer or whatever. And so so this pastor said to you, you know, this is what you're going to do. Uh, <laughs> you weren't able to eat for two weeks. Uh, what happened then? So I I I, le- I left summer camp that summer and I went home. And, he's, and one of the things he also said, he said, start writing this story down. Mm. So I started writing the story in the fall of 2008. Mm-hmm. And every night I committed myself to write one paragraph a day. I was teaching in the daytime, coaching sports. And then when I got home, I was a single guy. I would sit at my computer and, and, and write my story down. Kind of out of order. Whenever I felt the memory came back, I would write. Yeah. And for three years, I wrote one paragraph a day from 2008 to mm-hmm. 2011. Um, that's why the book is so detailed because I I spent a ton of time writing. And what what's the uh, what's the title of your book? The book is called Catching Rice Birds: uh, A Story of Letting Vengeance Go. Uh, you can get it at any any bookstore. Amazon is is everywhere. Okay, great, yeah. great. And so <clears throat> so you've had this call placed on your life, uh, and but tell us a little bit about because still in your mind you had. Did, did you have thoughts of uh, taking uh, revenge? Because uh, your your father was 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 murdered. Absolutely, is this correct. And so your role up to this point in your life, your your role, your thoughts in your mind, your uh, reason for being was to track down the person who had killed your father, and uh, and and seek revenge. And so so let, let, let let's go back to the, back to that for a minute. So I mean, over over like a decade, whether these thoughts sort of germinating, festering, I guess, in yeah. your brain. T- tell us a little about, about about how your, what had happened to your family had generated so much hate within you. Yeah, um, and it was always when it was quiet. Mm. It's when my brain... So at night time? At night time, oh, went to that place. Yeah. And I would have these, uh, not fantasies, but these visions of this man whose name I knew, whose face I didn't know, like me punching him, me kicking him, me putting an axe in his ribs or putting a bullet in his head and over and over. And I replayed it over and over and over and over. And it always ended up that the man ended up dead and that ended up unhappy. Uh, um, you ended up unhappy. unhappy at the end. And I would go into 
always when the thought started, I would go into it with this, oh, I'm going to get what I really want. Yeah. And at the end of it, I would be unhappy. Uh. And so I started to see a counselor, I think 2008 or 2009, and I started talking to her about my grief initially. I just wanted to get over my grief because yeah. I would still cry for my parents and all those kinds of things uh, as a teenager and a man in his mid-20s, late-20s. And so I uh, I started seeing her, and she said, man, you need to deal with this, this unforgiveness thing. Right. So she gave me a way to do it. Uh, she said, when you go home, I want you to sit in a chair, put an empty chair across from yourself, and have a conversation with this man as if he's sitting there. Ooh. And I had those conversations probably 50 times a year for a year and a half or so. Yeah. And it didn't end up like I was unhappy, but I was sad. Mm. Because sometimes I would have this conversation and just ask him, why did you kill my dad? It's my hero, my father, yeah. you know, and I would break down and sometimes I would get angry at the chair, but no one was sitting in the chair, right, you right. know. Yeah. I would, I mean, I would be pouring sweat or tears and just letting my emotions go yeah. uh, against this individual. And I tried to anticipate um, what he would say, okay. whether he would be indifferent, he would want to fight me, he would want to curse yeah. me or not accept responsibility for killing my father, okay. et cetera, et cetera. You're listening to The Kingdom and Its Stories. My name is Julian Gibb, co-host with Bob Moffat. And today we're hearing from uh, Marcus, if you've just tuned in, Marcus's story in regards to his becoming uh, an orphan and being uh, wrenched away from his family and his culture. And we're just hearing now about how he's imagining in his head that uh, he's in a room alone with the man who murdered his, uh, his father, the man who ruined his life. And just what Marcus would do at that point if he was left alone in a room with this man. So, so Marcus, so you were saying how, you know, in your mind, you know, 50 times a year you'd envision, you'd sort of screenplay, you'd, you'd envision this situation where this, this once mighty murderer is now, I guess, on his knees or something in front of you and, and you have the upper hand. And, and so uh, you have thoughts of, you have thoughts of what? I have thoughts of killing him. And even though I was a Christian, I could not let go of that hurt was so deep. Because, I mean, my dad is, is gone. Uh, I have no one to call when I have something. No one. I, at that point, I graduated college and graduations, successes. All I played soccer in college. You know, I was one of the only kids to walk out on the field on senior day without any parents. And it was so pronounced that day. I mean, it was it was heartbreaking. Um, a lot of the things that I, you wish you could celebrate, you know, to call oh, this person, I'm doing well. Hey, you know, you don't have anybody. And when you're an orphan, it, it actually is 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 a terrible is a terrible way to to go through life because you end up being more self sufficient than you need to, and you don't have anyone. And so, I was finally able to work out. I think it was probably the spring of 2010 to say the words, mm. "I forgive you." Mm. I forgive you at the end of those conversations. I forgive you. I forgive you. What do you need? Wow. And those were, oh, man, uh, hard. So, so you've got this man who, in a sense, took away your background, your family, some, your identity, you know, the foundation uh, of, who, of who you are, and, and now you're imaginary in your mind looking at him saying, I forgive you. For murdering my father and destroying my family and life, and I mean, was that was that mental or was it? Or 
was it from the heart as well, or did that take time? Or, or? it took uh, it took a lot of time, but it did come from the bottom of my heart. Yeah. I really wanted to let go of this this hatred that I had and this anger that I had that I couldn't get past. I had many relationships, but all of them were really shallow. No one really knew who I really was and what I was hiding. Is that a trust thing, or yeah, and and I didn't want to tell anybody. Oh, I'm planning on killing a guy. Right. Uh, right, right. You know, and no one, very few people know, I would say. I think one of my friends, two of our friends in college, I may have shared that, man, I'm really yeah. angry at a situation yeah. that happened 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and so in the spring of 2010, I get online mm. and I buy a ticket to go back to Liberia. Mm. And my goal is I'm going to find this guy and I'm going to have a conversation with him and I'm going to tell him that I forgave him. Mind you, I haven't been in Liberia since I was 11 years old. I'm uh, 31 years old in 2010. That's a 20, 20 years. Year I haven't seen my siblings in 20 years. So they're, they're in Liberia? They're in Liberia. The war has ended. The war ended seven years before. I have contact with them through the Internet, you know, yeah. emails, all those things. Everyone's doing, doing well. Oof. And so I'm like, I, I got to get back to Liberia, you know. So I buy the ticket. Well, well, there's 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 two things I've got to know. Well, well, I guess one is, you know, a big shout out to the armed forces. You know, highly respect them, appreciate them, and I'm very glad you failed. <laughs> <laughs> so am I. <laughs> but uh, a big shout out to the armed forces. We appreciate you. Um, but but seriously, in regards to you, what 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 enabled you? To melt your heart, you 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 were you were attacked, yeah. and you had this anger with the understandable anger. I mean, we all have anger in our lives from things that have happened to us in the past, and uh, you know, um, a few of us would uh, have the situation that you had. So, what enabled you to go from this person who was in the military training to 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 to, to kill? to being able to go to try and track down a person and forgive them and love them. What enabled you to do that? It seems cliched or, or, or you know, Christianese, but uh, when I understood what Jesus Christ did mm. for a sinner like me uh, who had things in his life, I understood that I was, in a sense, no better. And the other thing that I was forced to reckon with was that when I went back to Liberia and saw them, the men who did these kinds of things, that they weren't the monsters I had imagined. Hmm. Um, they were young boys. Young boys. When the war the was time. happening, yeah. And they were they were basically trying to survive and follow, follow orders, quote-unquote. But it was such chaos. And I saw them now, they were my age at that point, and they were wanting what I wanted out of life, just a, a meaning, a sense of a sense of understanding. Um So they were like ten at ten, a time when they Oh yeah, they were child soldiers in the war. Um and I just I I, I it made me think of myself mm. that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God myself. Mm. And I knew I couldn't live the rest of my life holding a grudge against people mm. and actually move on with life. Mm. Um, all that stuff was dug up, I think, when I understood what Jesus did for me. Mm. And it, it 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 made me have not only empathy 
for those who have done things, but also a way to see when people have wronged me or I have been wronged. How do I, or you have been in the wrong mm-hmm. and to, to ask for forgiveness and to work through that. And I think that's the greatest, greatest gift. So, so could you have done it without, I'm going to say it's unashamedly, could you have done it without Christ, without that, that help? I mean, what? not in a way that I, uh, not in a way that I think would be fully complete. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I don't think I would have had the, the comfort level in going to actually face the person who hurt me mm. and, and regardless of what their reaction would have been and say, I forgive you and I'm going to move on and I want to offer you this forgiveness. Mm. Um, and I want to free myself from the prison of unforgiveness. Wow. So Marcus, will you come back again? Cause we, there's uh, so much more we want to hear so much more. We want to unpack, you know, how God is using you, now the experiences that you've had in your life and how God is using that you know what what man intended for evil you know God is intending for good so thank you well well, we look forward to welcoming you back and to all listening you've been listening to the kingdom and its stories wishing you a blessed and wonderful week Jesus defines discipleship as come and follow me next Monday at 5.30pm on Faith Talk 1360 We'll hear another testimonial from a leader demonstrating how they and the people of the church are sacrificially loving the needy and beginning to see real change in their communities. If you have a personal example of how you are being the hands and feet of Jesus with your neighbors, we'd love to hear from you. Enter your story at harvestfoundation.org. That's harvestfoundation.org on the Contact Us tab. You can also subscribe to the podcast on The Kingdom and Its Stories on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.